My guest today is John Northrup, who is founder and CEO of Stingray Therapeutics, a biotech company in immune oncology therapies. So uh, thank you, John, for joining us and welcome. Oh, delighted to be here, Hubert, and happy to, to help in any way I can. So we've just uh, had the chance to talk a little bit here. Uh, we're both in snow, uh, you in Indianapolis, I'm in Dallas, and uh, but the difference is people in Indianapolis can handle snow. And uh, here in Dallas, it's uh, a substance unknown to be examined and um, experienced for the first time by most people. So the results are accordingly uh, interesting. But we're here to talk about uh, Stingray and um, Really, what I like to do in this series is to talk about how it all started. And so uh, if you can just give us an idea of you know, how it all got started and how you got started. And I know there's two stories because there's the company story. And then also in your case, uh, this is not your first rodeo. Well, well, thank you. I mean, uh, I'm kind of an old dog. I, uh, I had a career at Eli Lilly and so got started in the pharmaceutical business and loved it. And uh, took early retirement from Lilly and uh, then went and did consulting. And at that time, Asia was blooming with service business. And I had several people from my alma mater, Wharton, that I hired for Lilly. And they came to me and said, hey, would you consider consulting in Asia? Because we think people would find your background helpful and we'd be happy to introduce you. And so I did that. Uh, I had never known Asia working for Lilly, my my geographic boundaries were Europe and the US during my career at Lilly. So I found that very interesting. And that morphed uh, a successful consultancy, morphed into running the venture group for a large uh, contract research organization called Jubilant Life Sciences in India. And I actually lived in Bangalore for uh, two or three years, enjoyed that, found it really different. And uh, while running the venturing group, I had an expert in every therapeutic area that I worked with. And in oncology, I worked with a fellow by the name of Dr. Sunil Sharma, who's really a, a great eminent clinical research oncologist. So fast forward, uh, the recession hit Jubilant had grown their company with a lot of dollar-denominated instruments, and these were great when the rupee was strong, but in the flight to safety in the recession, the dollar was king and the rupee went way down. So that became a real problem, and Jubilant didn't want to do venturing anymore. I came back to the U.S. and took one of the opportunities that Jubilant wouldn't do, and talked to Sunil about it. And he said, John, this is the best thing I've ever seen from you. I've looked at about 500 things, and this is awesome. If Jubilant won't do it, why don't you and I try? So we started our first biotech company in the middle of the recession. And we had uh, about uh, 250000 in investment from ourselves, friends, and family. And we got an Obama award the year that he gave awards to biotech. That was 244000 And with that half million, we started a, a company called Betacat Pharmaceuticals, which is now known as Iterion Therapeutics. And uh, then we developed the program. 
uh, eventually wound up moving to Texas because of the Cancer Prevention and Research Institute of Texas that gave us a $16 million award. We perfected the program, got it into the clinic. And then as I was raising the Series A, the VC that had a little bit of seed money in the company, Sante Ventures, came to me and said, hey, John, we want to do the whole Series A. But uh, when we put this much money in a company, we want our own guy running it. So I went up to the board and uh, Sunil and I had also started a second company, Solarius Pharmaceuticals, which we've been able to take on to the NASDAQ. And then in 2016, we started this company, Stingray Therapeutics. And at the time, checkpoint inhibitors and CAR-T therapies were starting to show their prominence and really were an incredible revolution in uh, oncology. And so Sunil and I, we talk a couple times every week, maybe three or four times. And one of these calls I said to him, I said, Sunil, immune oncology is the hottest thing since night baseball. Where's our program? And he got his team together and he said, everybody, I want you to take a month and research immune oncology and come back with what you think would be a great discovery program that we could be involved in. And it just can't be a checkpoint inhibitor because there are about 60 of those in development. (laughs) So they came back with this program in ENPP1 inhibition. And at the time, it was not really uh, very strongly thought of in the general community. In the general community, there was an alternative approach, uh, which I'll just call without explaining it, direct sting agonism, and that was all the rage. And we were kind of the minority view, but we felt that this would be a better way to go. And so we started up the company and worked on chemistry, trying to make great compounds that would inhibit EMPP1. That's how we got started. So I guess in your case, this is seamless. You can keep talking. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about the, the company aspect of um, the program and how did the rest of it come together? And then, and then the mission, your first application. So it's been a great ride. And, you know, we have, we have tried to perfect a business model across the three companies and we improve it with each company, but it's essentially a, very similar business model. We start these companies with our own money and some high net worth individuals, and we start them on a shoestring. We uh, we pick targets that aren't fully validated, that are a little more iffy, just like ENPP1. And the reason for that is that we want to avoid competing directly with big pharmaceutical companies and strong VC-backed biotechs that uh, can just out-resource us and run right over us. So we start a little earlier than they do, uh, based on our intuition, our thought process, using Sunil's scientific brain to pick really great targets. And then over time, we typically see that the world shifts. And it's happened in all three companies. And uh It happened with this one. And basically our first seed series 
the message was pretty much, hey, we have a great team. We have a great target. Trust us that we'll get to a great molecule and get it into the clinic. And so uh, uh, we were able to find great investors who backed us and believed in us and gave us enough money uh, to make that happen. But of course, we, uh, we stayed very poor during that whole time, pouring everything into the program not paying salaries in anything like that and basically taking our compensation as uh, equity in the company. So interestingly, we, we had a real breakthrough this December. An article was published in Cancer Discovery, and, and that article basically said that in metastatic cancers, our target ENPP1 is highly upregulated. And it contributes to the resistant that's checkpoint inhibitors C. And it contributes to the production of adenosine, which is a really nasty immunosuppressive molecule. It suppresses about a dozen important immune system fighters and also is a pro-metastatic agent. This article said if you inhibit ENPP1, that's actually a far smarter and better strategy than direct sting agonism which has been the mainstream. So all of a sudden, in our little wheelhouse, it it turned the world on its end and made us the majority program and the other approach the minority program. So that was fantastic for us, and it's given uh, tremendous interest. We are filing our IND this June, and we're looking at the first clinical study that we do being in patients that are in cancers where immune checkpoint inhibitors have very low response rates, typically 15% or less. And we believe by adding our ENPP1 inhibitor, we have a shot at getting those response rates up to over 50%, maybe even 65%. Uh, And the idea would be to really go in combination with checkpoint inhibitors. Our, Our immune system is a two-armed system. We have adaptive immunity, which is what the checkpoint inhibitors work in, and innate immunity, which is primarily what our target works in, although it does have some adaptive immune functions as well. We believe by getting both arms of the immune system into the fight, we're going to able be able to take immune oncology into many more tumors with higher success rates and hopefully even uh, even contemplate some cures. So now taking a step back, obviously entrepreneurs listening always are looking for nuggets of wisdom. You've been around the block, so I'm, I'm going to try to extract as many nuggets as possible, but ideally also actionable nuggets, right? So one of your nuggets was, okay, find a genius scientist who is – also, obviously, a great guy who you can form a lifelong partnership with or even, you know, even after a career, a lifelong partnership with and then just do all sorts of cool stuff. So <laughs> needless to say, not terribly good to action and, and or, or happen to be an Eli Lilly, you know, quasi king and then do this. So, again, harder to do. But what is easier to do is to ask you pick any of the three companies. but maybe on the last one, can you talk a little bit about a moment that was 
harder? Or can you talk a little bit about something that was, you know, a little tougher in how you overcame it? Uh, something that you didn't expect, or even with all the experience you have, you were stumped and, and kind of a way that you got around it. Sure, sure. Well, first I would say, you know, I do think it's really important to have good partnerships and, uh, and have a good team. And I don't think it's at all easy for one person to make everything happen with the complexity and the depth of what you have to do today to make a real contribution in a technological business. So I think having great partners and, and the natural partnership is a business guy who needs to spend 85% of his time raising money and 15% of the time running the business and a science guy who, who really has the vision and the ability to get there. And, and that's an essential piece of the puzzle. Uh, I think among the toughest moments are it's always tough to start a new business and get that first money in. And just about every entrepreneur I've talked to always talks about the fact that getting started, getting the first money when your business is very early and uh, you're perceived as more risky is a hard thing to do. And that's where we were able to turn to friends and family. Uh, Since we're in biotech, we turn to physicians who have some understanding of the space and could could follow what we were talking about and do a bit of diligence. And we turned to organizations like Health Wildcatters. And being in Health Wildcatters was enormously helpful uh, because Health Wildcatters has a group of people that are fundamentally very interested in helping you in your business. And because they have access to uh, high net worth individuals who do invest. And so uh, we just worked very hard and took uh, those benefits and and took those programs very seriously, and and they really helped us tremendously. You having so much experience uh, having you in the program and seeing you operate was a a lot of fun as well. Um, I'll say this because, again, this is educational for a lot of people, having you know, the ability to observe you and what you do and how you operate when it comes to the fundraising piece, for instance, is, um, I mean, a very focused, organized execution, but persistent person who who's going to follow up with every single lead there is, not in a obnoxious way. And you have arguably very strong um groups of people you already know that have backed you. And yet here you were uh, exposed to a whole new group of people and, and you just followed up with them. And when you didn't follow up with them, you found them, you pinged them on LinkedIn. You told them I'm in the health locators group. I'm new. Would you be willing to talk to me? And those were our mentors or other, or our investors. And, and uh, so you really took what you were given and maxed it out. And then even so, everyone knows not everyone's going to invest. It's going to be a, a few of those. But unless you have a high number to start with, you just can't get there. And I've not, I've not seen anyone execute on that as, as well as you have. And, and that doesn't mean we don't have great entrepreneurs. It just had more, vi- more vision into it all. You were very open about it and shared it with me. And so it was really fun for me to see as well. 
uh, and helps me tell others and bring you back and talk to the teams as well. But this this podcast is for anyone. And so uh, maybe you can describe a little bit about what you do when you you know methodically go after the relationships and what it is you need to do. Because a lot of people will look at you and say, you just told me you got $16 million. Well, that's just great and wonderful. And I know you got a lot more than that. But most people won't ask you, and how many phone calls was that to get to the first <laughs> million? Because then it was one application, you got the secret, and that was a lot of work, of course. But that first 100,000 or the first million, that's hard, hard-earned money. Yeah, that money comes in in 10 and $25,000 increments. And so that's a lot of pieces to get to a million dollars. And, um, but, but what I do is, first of all, I try and be very sincere and honest with everyone. I want to put my best foot forward, but I also always want to be sure that I'm never caught in a falsehood or in something that can be misinterpreted. Uh, if that's possible. And uh, if it does happen, I want to get to it as quickly as possible to try and rectify that relationship. But it it is about building relationships. And uh, it is about sort of starting at the top of the funnel and uh, pinging people to see if they might be interested, to see if they might consider investing, to show them the opportunity that you have and get their feedback. Also, it's a two-way street, getting getting their help if there are things that don't resonate with them. And it's always wonderful, even if somebody turns you down, if they give you a piece of wisdom about how your pitch could be improved or what they didn't like about what you told them so that you can work on that and try and understand how you can mitigate it if it's mitigatable. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, I just... You know, you you have a job of building those relationships, and uh, I do use LinkedIn where I can. I do uh, use um, the documents that I get. Uh, when I went to Health Wildcatters, I, I grabbed the uh, catalog that we got of everybody who was in the program and all the mentors and people that were connected and reached out, and I would sit down with Hubert, you know, pretty much every other week, and talk about anybody else he knew that maybe it might make sense to contact. And then I also, uh, you know, I would be in Dallas. It doesn't matter what city it is, but it was another good reason to find other people in Dallas who maybe weren't associated with the program that I could stop by and ping because I, I could be there and it was easy to make a meeting. And then I just, just try and, and winnow the flock until I get to the folks that, might really have an interest, and I try and and spend my time uh, continuing to move forward. And then I think it's also very important. It's a relationship. It typically takes six to nine months, and people want to see that you're making progress while you're talking to them. So you want to be sure that you're also moving the business forward and getting things done, and and that they can see that you're a hard worker and uh, you're not just going to take their money and sit on it, but you're going to do something with it that works for you and works for them. Uh, well said. Yes. Um, so a, a monthly uh, update or quarterly update any to anyone that's ever expressed an interest, not, not to ask for money, just give them, give them that confidence that, uh, that you're working on something that you're making progress. 
And some of the strongest entrepreneurs I see, you know, write these letters and also write in setbacks, disclose something that didn't go the way they had hoped. I, uh, as, as a matter of fact, one of the, the best newsletters I get from one of our alumni starts with the worrisome. <laughs> I, I'm not quite on board with leading with the negative. <laughs> but I, and who knows, maybe it isn't. Maybe it isn't the first thing, but it's stuck in my head as the first thing. So. <laughs> but again, this is a, a, a superb entrepreneur who's executing at the highest level and have all the confidence in the world. And you can only do that if you're strong. But um, the many people that you have to ping to get to the five or 10 out of 100 that might invest, that's hard work. And while we can help short circuit that in a lot of cases, somebody still has got to make the call. Somebody still got to go take the meeting. Somebody still got to follow up on that email. And um, and also be gracious when they wave off immediately or take a meeting and then wave off and not be uh, disappointed with that. Very difficult to do, especially as a rookie. And it's hand to hand combat. And um, sometimes you take it personally, you know, and that's not supposed to be that way. So over time, you learn to not and uh, enjoy the journey. And um, I think you've you've exemplified that in, in a lot of respects. So many things don't apply to you on my, my general list of questions, you know, the biggest. But I mean, even if we, again, roll all, all of your entrepreneurial experience into one, if you were to um, talk about maybe your biggest your biggest take home message from for a rookie fundraiser, let's say, you know, someone that's just getting started. What would you tell them or what was what it you learned in your first uh, first encounters that you think you wish you had known? Uh, uh, things you now know that you had known back then. Sure, sure. So, so there, there's several things I think I could bring up that might possibly be helpful. The, the first is obviously you have to listen to your marketplace, and you have to customize your business model to what people want to invest in. The first time I started out with my partner in the very first company. We really wanted to have a multi-product oncology company, and we had three or four assets we wanted to raise money for. And, you know, we were really envisioning creating a company that we could take public and, you know, run and do a whole bunch of things that we wanted to do. And after six months of kind of running into a brick wall, I realized that investors didn't want to invest in that model. And at least the ones we were talking to, that model took too long to get a return. It uh, it wasn't focused enough. When I would talk to investors about two or three assets, they might like one and not the other. And then they would have conversations with me about how does my money go just to the asset I care about? And that was very difficult to answer. And so we just split the assets apart and we made each company super focused. And then we found investors that had a passion for what we were doing. If we were doing something for children and children's cancer, if we were doing something for a particular kind of cancer that their family was afflicted by, or uh, if they were in the industry and had some knowledge and, and saw the potential. 
And we were much more successful doing that. Um, I never really intended to be sort of a serial entrepreneur and have company after company, but that was kind of what the market would support. And then you get to a certain stage and the company gets to an advanced point and you're maybe having discussions about having an IPO or taking the company public. And now all of a sudden being a single asset doesn't make so much sense. And people are looking for more platform oriented things. So it's, it's all about listening to your audience and trying to facilitate your business model to something that makes sense for them and still makes sense for you. So I would say that's the first point. The second point to me is kind of understanding the ecosystem and how the various investors in the ecosystem work. I wasted a lot of time talking to venture capital people that I had known from my days being in corporate business development at Lilly at company stages that were way too early for them to be interested. And uh, I would have a lot of meetings and they would be very nice to me, but they wouldn't do anything. (laughs) And then that's when I really learned that angel investors and high net worth investors are really much more open to investing in the early stages of companies and really learn that institutional investors really want to see the business model functioning and operating well. And then they're willing to add fuel in terms of money to the fire to blow it out. But they're often not willing to really invest in a new venture that's completely unproven. And so a lot of that early day time uh, was wasted because I was spending the most precious resource you have, your time, in the wrong places to accomplish what I needed to accomplish. I I would say those are two of the biggest tips I would give people. Yeah, for sure. And and if you're not in the sales sales business, you will be as a company CEO, uh, you will be a salesperson. And I don't say that in any demeaning way. All I mean to say is that it's your job to get people uh, into invested in your company. And just like anything else, they have to be excited about it. They have to see the potential. And uh, as much as you can learn from, from the pros on the sales side, uh, the better, because sometimes it simply has to do with following up in a timely manner uh, and also being not too on top of it, not checking in every single day. So uh, I think I want to just wrap here with anything else, John, you would like to add? uh, Yeah. One of the things I've been impressed with uh, this last year, and it's, it's been uh, partially because of the whole COVID environment that we're all dealing with, but Um, I've been amazed to see how the new digital tools can help. And reaching out over LinkedIn, trying to find people that say they invest in companies like yours and uh, trying to build a relationship over platforms like that and then following up. Uh, has let me find people that are potential investors really all over the world uh, and in uh, distant places and certainly all over America 
that I never thought would be productive, but is starting to actually be quite productive for me. And that's, that's kind of a new trick for me because I'm kind of a press the flesh kind of used to the old personal selling model. So, uh, but it's, it's amazing how technology is moving us forward and there are technology solutions for all these things. And, uh, and it, you can extend yourself with artificial intelligence and with other folks and yet be the CEO who is directly talking to all these people, you know, in these new digital ways, because people really do expect that they're going to be conversing with the CEO if you're talking about um, investing in a company and, uh, and building a vision. That's right. That's good, good words to, to end on. So um, thank you, John. Again, today, my guest was John Northrup, CEO and founder of Stingray Therapeutics. So thanks for joining us, John, and um, looking forward to all the great things that uh, you and your company will be able to accomplish. Thanks, Hubert. Great to be with you.